chapter 8, verse 28 through 30, as we continue with our series in the morning in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And hear God's word. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your word. How thankful we are for the rich box of treasures, as the Puritans would say, from which the believer might draw and, and, and find comfort for his heart in all things, even in that which he suffers. God, we pray that there might indeed be an abundance of consolation to your people this day. Through this word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been working through Romans and Romans chapter 8 in particular. And as we come to verses 28 through 30, uh, I'm looking at them as standing on their own in a sense, although at the same time beginning what is uh, the climax of the chapter, the great conclusion. It begins at verse 28 and it goes all the way to the end. I think verse 39 is the last verse. And so I want to preach a series of sermons on these Three verses. I don't know how many. We preached, I preached one last time, one today, at least one more. Last time, uh, as, as a way to introduce the text, we looked at the promise, the main point in verse 28, which he then explains in verses 29 and 30, the main point, the main proposition. What is true of the believer is this. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And there were four points which I made about that verse. The first is the extent of all things. We know that all things. Well, what's the extent of it? Not just the bad things, but the good things. Or the best things, as Thomas Watson says. That's the first point. Second, what he means when he says, we know. We know that all things work together for good. Well, the nature of this knowledge. uh, The nature of this knowledge is that it's equivalent to assurance. It's like a conviction that's formed in the heart. It isn't just a theoretical knowledge of a truth that's outside of ourselves, but it's something that is confirmed really every day in the experience of the believer. Number three, why all things work together for our good? And the answer is because God is the one who does so. He is the one who works all things for good for the believer. And then number four, those to whom the promise applies. Those who love God to those who love God and to those who are called according to purpose. Indeed, I I hope in the next sermon, to look at those two phrases a little more closely as descriptions of the Christian. But having done that, having introduced verse 28, we need to see how Paul proceeds to unfold the argument for verses 28 through 30 stand together, as I say. Verse 28 doesn't stand on its own. We love to quote it. It's a favorite verse of Christians, but it belongs together with verses 29 and 30. So he goes on to add, for whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, why does Paul add that? And what, what, what is he adding to the statement in verse 28? Well, at the end of verse 28, he says that all things work together for good to those who are called according to purpose. Another way that we could put that is the reason all things work together for good for the Christian is because the Christian is someone who is called according to purpose. And in verses 29 and 30, Paul tells us what that purpose is, how it originates. It originates in eternity in the mind of God. He foreknew the believer, how it works itself in time. He calls, he justifies the believer, and even in eternity to come, he glorifies the believer. That's the purpose of God, and believers are called according to that purpose. And because they're called according to that purpose, well, we know that all things work together for good. Supposing we've been called. And to the extent that we know this, so we will know that all things are working for our good. I mean, to the extent that we are aware of God's purpose and that we stand in that purpose, we will be assured that everything in our life is working together for our good. And so there's two points I want to make about that. Really, I'm just looking at the phrase... His purpose. The believer is called according to his purpose. We're considering the purpose of God for the believer. That makes all things work together for his good. The first point is this. God's purpose for the believer presupposes a relation that he sustains to the believer. There is nothing, in other words, here about God's relation to mankind in general. There isn't anything in Romans chapter 8 in its description of the rich privileges and the blessings of believers that applies to the unbeliever. It's obvious that Paul is at pains to make a distinction, to say that for the man who's in Christ, well, look at how uh, here in this case, all things are working together for his good. Look at how he possesses all things even. How he stands in favor with God through Christ. But, but he, he is excluding at the same time everyone who stands outside of Christ. In fact, he, he puts it as strongly as this in verse 10. If anyone is not in Christ, he's none of his. He doesn't belong to Christ. He doesn't enjoy a single blessing that Christ bestows upon believers. He has no part in Christ. Christ owns him not now, nor will he on the last day. Oh, but the believer, Paul says, the one who has a part of Christ who enjoys fellowship with Christ by faith. Well, the believer enjoys all things. There isn't anything, Paul says. Now, I'm, I'm beginning to get ahead of myself, but let me say it anyways. There isn't anything that God won't give to the believer, to the child whom he loves. That's the great argument. That's the overarching argument. See how blessed are the sons of God. At the same time, see how woeful indeed are those who are not. And so what Paul is saying here, in verse 28, that all things work together, not for everyone, but to those who love God, to those who are called according to purpose. That fits in with the overarching argument of Romans chapter 8. How blessed indeed are the sons of God. And if you're a son of God, what you, you, you should smile in the face of that truth. You should live and, and always bask in the glory of the light of that truth. 
Paul is really saying, what can shake the believer? What can make him sad? What can make him doubt? What can make him doubt God? Seeing that, the meaning of verse 28 becomes clear. It's as though Paul is saying, again, within the context of all that he's been saying in chapter 8, will God fail to grant us all things, seeing that we love him as sons? Seeing that we've been called according to his purpose? Is there anything he won't do for us? Is there anything he won't give us? We are heirs of God, Paul says. He said that a little earlier on in in chapter 8. We're his heirs, not just his sons, but his heirs. He has promised us an inheritance. Will he fail to give us what he has promised to give us? It's the same argument. Verse 28 is the same argument in advance that he makes in verse 32. He says... He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Is there anything he won't give us? He's given us the best thing. Will he not also with along with the best thing, give us all things? God is clearly working for us. He's working for our good. Is there anything he won't do? Indeed, a verse before he says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, that's the overall argument. That's the thought which Paul presents not only in verse 28, but in verse 31 and 32 and all through chapter 8. Oh, there's no condemnation for the believer who's in Christ. But I go beyond that, Paul. And he he keeps heaping blessing upon blessing upon blessing in the face of all that the Christian is made to suffer in this world. And certainly we can say in light of that teaching... God will make all things work together for our good. In this little book, All Things for Good, based upon this verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Thomas Watson, I think, very helpfully states what he calls the grand reason. The grand reason why all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to purpose. The grand reason, well, it's exactly what I'm saying here. It's the, it's the relation that God sustains to believers. This is how he puts it. It's the near and dear interest which God has in his people. You see, he could have just said the interest God has in his people. He's interested in us. He's invested in us, but he goes further. He says it's a near and it's a dear interest. The believer is very precious to God. The believer has always been very precious to God. He is their God and they are his people. Indeed, that is something of a master promise in scripture. I will be your God and you will be my people. There's nothing beyond this. And do we appreciate what this means practically, beloved, for God to say, I will be your God and you will be my people. Indeed, to say it in the present. He is our God and we are his people. It means that he is our God. He doesn't stand at a distance But as our God, he enlists all that he is and has for our protection and welfare. He is our God. Is there anything better, I ask you? Is there anything beyond this for God to say to a sinful and wayward people, I am your God? It means he is a father to us. Even the best father. And when we say that he's a father to us, again, we're speaking of the near and dear interest that he has in his people, even from all eternity. Even from eternity, he has loved the believer in Christ. And how has he loved him? Well, he's loved him as a father. And there's no greater love than that. 
In all that God does from the believer, in all that he's been planning to do for the believer from all eternity, he is animated, he's motivated by the love of a father for a son. And the father always seeks the welfare of his children. If we think of what Paul was saying earlier in chapter 8, that's the whole point. He's saying, well, the Christian is a son of God. He's aware of it. He's been made aware of it by the Spirit in him. Now he relates to God as his father. Well, go even beyond that and before that and realize that God relates to us as a father to sons. And when you see that, when you understand the love of the father, when you understand that that motivates him in everything that he does, in his wise ordering of all things, Well, then it will be perfectly obvious to you that all things are working together for your good. You will smile in the face of every difficulty, every circumstance, every adversity. He's a father to us. And we are dear to him. It also means he's a husband to us. And what is a husband? Well, a husband is someone who invites the wife to become one with him. Great indeed is the mystery, but I speak, Paul says, not of the husband and his wife, but of Christ and the church. And the mystery of Christ and the church is that they've been made one, even as the son and the father are one. The two shall become one. That's what's happened between God and his people. God has united a wayward and sinful people unto himself in Christ his son. And if he has done this much, if he has gone this far, Will he not cause all things to fall out for our good? Will he not freely give us all things? It also means, and by the way, if you're familiar with Watson's arguments, you'll just see me reproducing his arguments here. It means he's a friend to us. Do you remember Jesus said that? He said, you are my friends. Can you imagine the Lord of glory dwelling among us in the flesh and saying, you're my friend? Not just I'm your friend. We know that. But you're my friend. I've befriended you. And when we say that, let us realize we're saying that he's the best friend. He's the most faithful friend. He's committed to us. In all these ways, we see the grand reason that all things work together for good for the believer. It's because of the near and dear interest which God has in his people. So there's a great difference between those who are called as sons and those who are not. And do we do we appreciate this difference? Do we understand what is the fate of the wicked? You see, that is another way to make this very point. Are we aware of the fact that those who are not, those who do not love God, those who are not called according to purpose, that nothing works together for their good? That everything is conspiring, even the things that they enjoy most in this life. Everything is conspiring and contributing to their final ruin. Did we ever consider this when we thought of them? But it is otherwise for the godly, Paul is saying. For the godly, everything, even those things which seem to work against them in this life, is conspiring together for their good both now and forever. So great is the difference between the godly and the wicked. But that leads me now to a second point. Having seen God's purpose presupposing a relation that he sustains to his people, the second point concerning his purpose is what that purpose is. We need to see that behind the good he is working is his purpose. And to realize that the great point that Paul is making here is not simply that all things work together for my good. You see, when I state it like that, I'm making this too much about me, and the passage is not so much about me, it's about God. 
The passage is about his purpose. And when, as I said earlier, when I understand that purpose, well, then I'll see how all things are working together for good. But don't highlight the good so much as highlight the purpose. What is that purpose? Well, that purpose is the salvation of the believer. Complete and perfect on the day of Christ. It isn't just that he would be saved today. It's that his salvation would be brought to completion on the last day. In other words, Paul is presenting salvation as a whole, considered as a whole in the plan of God. And all that God has willed for man in this world works to this great end. Everything in the world is conspiring to the salvation or for the salvation of the elect. The key is to connect all things with God's purpose, which is that the believer might be perfect and complete on the day of Christ. That he might, as Paul states in verse 29, be conformed to the image of Christ, his son. That's what he's predestined the believer unto. That's what he planned in advance. And that's what God is sure to bring to pass for the believer and for the church. And if you understand that purpose broadly, in other words, if you understand the end to which all things are laboring and conspiring in the great plan of God, then you will see why all details must work out. Toward that good and that end. Because if they do not. If all things do not conspire to bring about the believer's glorification. When in the resurrection he is conformed to the image of Christ the son in his resurrection. Well then the plan of God is thwarted. It's overthrown. It's tripped up. And that's not possible. Because the plan. uh, The one whose plan and purpose we are considering is God himself. Nothing can stand in the way of it. Not the smallest detail in all the world. Everything must fall into place. God will see to it. Let me also state concerning that purpose. That the purpose of God that we're considering here, namely the glorification of the believer, his full conformity to Christ in the last day and his resurrection, does not just come into, into God's mind at the end. I, I mean, not at the end, uh, uh, after the beginning. It isn't as though God thought of it as an afterthought. That's the dispensational fallacy. If that doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. (laughs) But the point is, God didn't say, well, you know, I created Adam to be a perfect man and to enjoy this world. And then he fell and, uh, well, plan A didn't work out so well. And so now I need another plan. I need another purpose. I wanted Adam to succeed, but he didn't. That was my plan. It was thwarted. Now I need another plan. Well, what I'm saying is that that's not... The purpose of God. That's not how you should conceive of it. The purpose of God is something Paul is saying and that we have to grasp that has always been the purpose of God. It has always been his will for this world and for mankind from all eternity, even before he created Adam, even before there was a world, even before there was time. It was simple. There was simply God there in eternity and nothing else. The purpose of God was formed in his great heart and his great mind. It was his purpose for the son. We call this the covenant of redemption, the plan of God. And when he created the world, when he created uh, Adam and Eve, he he created them with this purpose in mind, that believers, the elect, would be glorified in Christ on the last day. Nothing less than that. So it was always his plan. It was always his 
intention. He always intended the believer's salvation in Christ, not in Adam, not in himself, but in Christ. He always intended that Christ and not Adam should be the firstborn among many brethren. And that that would be the great thing that stood uh, forth for all to see on the last day. Not the glory of man, not the glory of Adam, but the glory of Jesus Christ, surrounded by a company of brothers. From beginning to end, the whole history of the world has proceeded. It's been working according to this plan that was worked out already in the mind of God. This is something that Paul states eloquently in Ephesians chapter 1. He speaks of the eternal purpose of God, which is the salvation of believers in this way. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. You see, even before there was a world, he predestined us in Christ. He chose us in him. That in our salvation, his will would be accomplished and that the son would be glorified. In us, he goes on verses nine through eleven, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both things which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or as he puts it here, the eternal purpose of God is like this. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, what else can we say about this great eternal purpose of God to which we are called? If indeed we are in Christ, let me offer a series of statements about the purpose of God. All to the end that the believer's confidence in God's purpose would be made more sure. The first is this, because it's God's purpose, it's not left left to man in any sense to carry it out. It isn't a matter of man, not in any sense. There isn't a single detail that God has left to you. No, it's God's plan. And because it's God's plan, he will bring it to pass in all of its details. He's arranged it all in advance, uh, even your own salvation, especially your salvation. This is the kind of argument the Apostle Paul is fond of making, since we are always apt to make salvation a matter of works. Even the details of our lives, anything that falls under the all things, well, we want to claim some credit for it. I'm the one who did it. No, Paul says, there isn't anything you've done. There isn't anything that's ever happened to you which has contributed to this great end that you can claim even the smallest ounce of credit. He says in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, he says, for children, uh, let's see. For the children not yet being born, speaking of uh, the children of Isaac and Abraham, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It isn't a matter of what the man who works. It isn't the matter of man and his will or his desires. The only thing that matters is this. 
in our salvation. It's the purpose of God according to election. And that will stand and God will make sure that it stands. So nothing that Paul says here, whether the foreknowledge of God, the predestination of God, the calling of believers, the justification of believers, their ultimate glorification, all things working together for our good. Nothing in any of that supposes anything that man does. At no point is a single detail left to man to accomplish for himself or carry out. God doesn't say to man, you know, this is my plan. I leave it to you. Not at a single point. It is entirely a matter of what God does. This is something the Bible tells us will happen. Whatever man does, even his own sons. You see, you can try to stand in the way of it. You can try to stop God from saving you at a certain point. It won't matter. There isn't anything you can do. If you've been predestined, if you've been foreknown, if you've been called, there isn't anything man can do to thwart the plan of God. It is all of God. It is nothing of man. The plan is God's plan. Let us see that clearly. It is his purpose which he is carrying out. Notice the grammar. God is the subject in every case. Man is the object. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and so on and so forth. Man is the one who's called. Man is the one who's foreknown. He's the object. God is the subject. Because it's God's purpose, nothing is excluded. That's the second thing. Nothing, uh, it, it isn't just that man does not contribute, but nothing contributes. There isn't a single force in the whole universe that is left to itself to work of its own will or power. There isn't anything random. There isn't anything that happens by chance. Everything that has ever happened or that ever will happen falls under his purpose, which we call his providence. Nothing is excluded. He is causing, you see, this is the truth in verse 28. He is causing all things to work together according to his plan. There is a, isn't a single molecule in the whole universe that is outside of his control. Or that can conspire against his great plan, which he formed in eternity. And so as a third point, because it's God's purpose, it is effectual. Or uh, to use another word, it is effective. It's powerful. It's carried forward by a power that none is great enough to oppose. There isn't anyone, not the angels who fell, not Satan, not you, not me, not the greatest powers the world has ever known, who can stand against the power of God, who can overturn or thwart the power of God in a single point. Verse 33 he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You see, who can overturn the work of God? If he has justified you, he will certainly glorify you. He will certainly conform you to his son. If he's called you, this is, well, this is the purpose of God. Is anyone strong enough to oppose God? Or as he says in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you understand the force of that argument? Is anyone strong enough to oppose God? You see, once you understand the great plan and the purpose of God for the believer, and when you understand that it is God who has purposed it, and it is God who is bringing it to pass, you will realize that no one can stand in his way. If God is for us, who can be against us? Not the world, not the devil, not even myself. There is a power that animates the providence of God and brings his plan to pass. Not only that, but it's carried out by a wisdom which is divine. This is another great point that Paul is making, and we'll see him 
glorying in the wisdom of God at the end of chapter 11. <coughs> in fact, uh, just to preview what, where we're going, starting here in verse 28 to the end of chapter 11, the great thing Paul is pondering is the purpose of God. And as, as he's done contemplating it at the end of chapter 11, the thing that he marvels at, the thing that he glories in is the wisdom of God on display in his purpose. He doesn't say, you know, now that I've considered the purpose of God, I've got it. I understand it now. He is amazed by the mystery of the providence and the will and the wisdom of God. Here is a God who is too great for man. Here is a God whose purpose is past finding out. You see, man can't understand it. He can only begin to understand it in part, but never in full. God is too great for man. So we're meant to see his wisdom, not just his power. We are meant, uh, as we consider this truth, to adore the wisdom of God, which passes understanding in the wise ordering of all things according to his purpose. And, of course, we realize as soon as we say that, when we say, you know, this is a wisdom that is too great for me, we realize that many things that happen under the all things, many things that happen in our lives, we will not understand. And the thing that we won't understand is how they're working for our good. We'll look at them and we'll say, you know, as far as I can tell, I don't see the plan and the purpose of God at all in this. What I see, in fact, is the opposite. It seems to me as though the thing that is happening to me now is actually working against me. It's working against my salvation. In fact, I would go further and say, as I, considering, as I consider what's happening to me, it really seems that God is against me, not for me. You see, when you say that, what you're really saying is that you're a fool and that you don't understand. And it's okay to say that. The believer ought to say that. There's times like Job when you just need to put your hand over your mouth and say, I ought not to utter a word. When things fall out like this in your life, what you need to realize is that the falling out of all things are doing so according to a wisdom that is divine and unsearchable and unknowable. And you won't always know. You won't always understand. It won't always be clear to you how all things are working out for your good. It may often seem, as I say, just the opposite is true. And still you're able to say, I know. That all things are working together for my good. Even though I don't understand it. The next point is this. It is a purpose which has to do with his son. Let us see this clearly. I think I was already saying that earlier when I was defining the purpose. It is a purpose which ultimately has to do with his own son. It has to do with the counsel or the covenant of redemption. It's the purpose which the father made for and along with the son before there ever was a world before there ever was men to inhabit it. And we miss the great point of this text, which is the purpose of good uh, of God, not the good of man. If we make it about ourselves, what we discover in Romans chapter eight, especially verse twenty nine. When he says that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Notice where the emphasis lies there. Or if what we were reading in, in Ephesians chapter 1, that God purposed, uh, or as he says in Colossians, he summed up all things in his son. The purpose of God, he says in Ephesians and, and, and 1 Corinthians, was that Christ might stand preeminent over all things, and that all glory on heaven and earth might be given to the son. The purpose of God is, is the glory of the son. 
Well, I've been saying that in Acts, haven't I? That's what Peter was saying. What was God demonstrating through the healing of this man? Acts chapter 3. What he was demonstrating is the same thing he was demonstrating in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the glory of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the Savior of sinners. That's the great point. That's the purpose of God, that he might stand supreme, not only as the Son of God, but as the Lord of the universe and as the Savior of sinners. And everything that God does, everything that he has done, even the fall of Adam, yes, that's included in the plan of God. Everything that has ever happened is conspiring to glorify the Son in just this way. And think of what Paul is saying here. He says he's predestined believers to be conformed to the image of the Son. We'll see that in later sermons. He's talking about the resurrection by which we are conformed to his resurrection body. And there we will have bodies like his on the last day. We'll be like him. But what he's actually saying is that God will do that for us so that he will become the firstborn of many brethren. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that God willed that, the, that Christ should become the firstborn so that he should stand supreme, that his preeminence would become clear. Where? In the presence of many brothers. You see, he's surrounded by his brothers and he's, he's standing preeminent. He's standing supreme. But what would happen to the glory of the Son, you realize, if he didn't have any brothers? Would he appear to be the firstborn among many brethren? Would God be glorifying his son in the way that he purposed if he didn't have brothers? No, he wouldn't. Do you realize why our salvation is necessary? It isn't for ourselves, you see. It's for the glory of the son. And when you realize that that is what is at stake in our salvation, you realize that it cannot fail, not in a single point, because the very glory of the son of God is at stake. Another point, two more points, or well, three more, about the purpose Its scope is eternal. That should be obvious, but let me emphasize it. The vast expanse of eternity is in view. You see, the problem that we face always, and this is inevitable, there's no way to escape this, is that we are utterly bound by time. You might even say we're trapped by time, but God isn't. And what we are considering here is not the vantage point of man. Even though Paul has been speaking of the present sufferings, even then, That's verse 18. Even then, he is considering the present sufferings, which is bound up in our present experience in light of the plan and the purpose of God. He's the one who brought this about. Don't you realize that? And don't you see what he's doing? Through the many things you suffer, you'll be brought to glory. Verse 17. All along, Paul is saying, I want you to consider everything, even the worst things, in light of eternity. And what you will see when you look at that is... The plan of God, the will of God, the decree of God. You'll see what he purposed in eternity past before there was a world. Beyond that, you'll see things as they will be one day in a new heavens and a new earth. You'll see the glory that awaits the sons of God. No, Paul is not saying when he says all things work together for our good. He's not speaking to us in the minutia of our experience. He's not speaking to us in time. He's taking us entirely outside of time. And he's placing us in the heavenlies, as it were by which we are able to consider and see the great eternal plan of God. And because it it spans the plan of God, the vast expanse of eternity, all the particulars of that plan have already been worked out. They've already been decided in advance. Another point, because it's God's purpose, it occurs as a unity. You see, we tend to isolate these things. He says all things, and then we we look at the individual things. No, Paul is saying all things. 
Or he says, the believer is someone who's justified. But not only that, we like to consider justification on its own. Paul is considering it as part of the whole. The believer is someone who's been predestinated, foreknown, called, justified, uh, glorified. All of these things standing together. That's the plan of God for the believer. That's what will become clear when we stand together with the son as his brothers. He the firstborn. He the preeminent. Do you realize that what Paul is saying is that when you consider the purpose of God, which is to consider uh, salvation in Jesus Christ, you ought not to isolate these things. You ought to consider them as a whole. You ought to consider the unity of God's plan. And when you do so, you'll realize to have one is to have all. That's the whole argument here. Each link in the chain, in the golden chain of salvation, is linked, John Murray says, by an unbreakable bond in the outworking of God's purpose. You can't at any point break the links. You can't say, well, you know, I've been justified, but I may not be glorified. There's the Roman Catholic heresy. And there are still those today who teach it. No, it's not possible. You see, you go all the way back to the foreknowledge of God and you realize our glorification is certain. And everything that comes in between, it's all linked together by an unbreakable bond. Let me put, let me put it this way again. At no point did God leave it to man to connect the links. He didn't say, well, you know, I'll justify you. I'll declare you as one who is just, but I leave it to you to prove it to me. And if you prove it to me, well, then I'll glorify you. Then I'll accept you into my kingdom. No, to have one is to have all. There is no way to isolate them. There is no way to separate the blessings. Every blessing is as certain as the other. And that is why every blessing is stated in the aorist tense, which in the Greek is the past tense, as though they're accomplished already. Those whom he foreknew, well, he also predestined them. And, and those whom he predestined, well, he also justified, he call, or called, justified, glorified. Even glorification, that is the end. That's what hasn't happened to us yet. Even Paul admits that. We're still in the body. We've yet to experience the resurrection. We're not glorified yet. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, he's saying from the standpoint of eternity, from the standpoint of the plan of God, you realize all these things stand together. And we, from the vantage point of, of time, are able to speak of them as certainty, almost as though they've already happened. Certainly from the standpoint of God, we can speak with such confidence. It's one purpose. And because it's God's purpose, it cannot fail. It's sure to happen. But the last point is that there is a logical sequence present in verses 29 and 30. What we call the ordo salutis, or again, the golden chain of salvation. Though the plan exists as a unity, nonetheless, in God's own plan and purpose, he arranged each step in our salvation in a way that suits his purpose. There is an order here that reflects his purpose. You can't change the order. That's a point I'll be trying to make in future sermons. You have to begin with foreknowledge and then predestination and then calling and then justification and then glorification. You cannot change that order without changing the purpose. No, the order reflects the purpose. The order accomplishes the purpose. And so we see that God in his wisdom begins at the beginning and he ends at the end. That's what we'll consider in detail when we go to look at each step in verses 29 through 30. Each step leads to the next. Inevitably and of necessity, the man who is foreknown of God will of necessity be predestined as well. You say, well, why doesn't predestination come first? Well, I'll tell you in, a, in another sermon, not, to, not now. But foreknowledge has to come first. But to be foreknown means, well, you'll be predestined inevitably. 
And well, to be predestined also means that you'll be called. And to be called means you'll be justified. And to be justified means that you will be glorified as well. Why? Because this is how the plan of God works itself out. And each step is as certain to come to the believer as the last until the end goal is achieved that God set out for the believer in the beginning. It's essential that we see this or we will fail to grasp the teaching that is meant to give us certainty about our salvation, which is the point of this teaching. Everything that Paul says in Romans chapter 8 is meant to give the believer an unshakable confidence in God and in his own salvation. If I am called... Well, then I may be sure that God has foreknown me and predestined me unto this. Not only that, but I can also know with certainty that I'm justified now and will be glorified in the end. It all fits together and there's no way to separate these things. Not in my experience, not in my knowledge. And as I'm aware of the relationship between each blessing, as they fall out according to God's great purpose, I see not only where I stand now, but where I will stand in eternity. I'm certain not only what I possess now, but what I will possess. I'm an heir and soon the inheritance will be mine. Well, that's the purpose of God, the great purpose of God. And that's the great thing to see here. The believer is someone who's been called, called, Paul says, according to his purpose. And that is what makes all things sure to him. That's what makes all things fall out. In his favor, according to the plan of God, all things work together for his good. And I ask you, as I asked you last time, do you know it? Paul says, we know and we know it. He he just presupposes it. But, well, I ask you, can I presuppose it about you? Is it something that you know? Not as a matter just of head knowledge, but but as a conviction that's formed in the heart. An unshakable confidence in conviction, I could put it as he, does in, as he does in another place. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not death, not powers, not anything. God's purpose for me is sure. There isn't anything that can thwart it, not anything that can separate me from it. And so this conviction being formed in my heart and more and more every day, I venture all, I venture out upon this promise. I leave all, I forsake all, and I follow Jesus Christ even unto glory. Because that's what he's promised to the believer. Are you sure? Not only of that purpose, but of that purpose for yourself. Amen. And let us now come to the table.